I want to talk to us this morning about the figure of Jacob from the book of Genesis to enter his story and to uh, reflect upon how it is that this maddening character, this uh, bundle of uh, intertwined um, God-given giftedness and yet deceitful scheming uh, is such an important figure in Scripture, and I also want to suggest, although in perhaps an exaggerated form, represents you and me as well. So our Old Testament lesson is from an episode in the Jacob saga, and I want to just hit some bullet points that put all of this in the context of that larger story. And many of these details you already know, I'm sure, but Jacob is the son of Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac himself, the son of Abraham and Sarah. Jacob has a brother, a twin brother, Esau, who was born just moments before Jacob was born. Esau is the eldest son. And we are told in that story that even in the womb, Jacob is wrestling and contending with another, something that will mark his life up to the story that we hear today. Esau, as he grows as kind of a a wild, rugged man, Uh, Jacob, as he grows, is a little bit more of a soft and domesticated man. Esau is the apple of his father's eye. Jacob is, if you will, a mama's boy. For the most part, Esau is a straight arrow, if a bit dull. For his part, Jacob often chooses the crooked path with clever craftiness. And here are two especially dastardly deeds that Jacob commits. You'll remember these. First, when they were younger adults, Jacob cheats Esau out of his birthright over a bowl of stew. Secondly, later on, as their father Isaac is on his deathbed, and Isaac wants to perform a very, very important cultural and religious function in that time, in that, that land, to pass on a final blessing to his eldest son. Jacob disguises himself and sneaks in and steals his father's blessing instead. So some of you, maybe most of you, have a sibling. And maybe you think, I know about sibling rivalry. The book of Genesis says you know nothing about sibling rivalry. We are told in the verses of the saga that Esau hated Jacob. And it is the mother, Rebekah, who comes to Jacob and whispers that, you know, I really think you've done it now. I I think your brother Esau is going to kill you, in fact. And if I were you, I would hightail it out of town. Why don't you go to my brother Laban, who lives in the east? So this long story involves a 14-year exile for Jacob in the land of his uncle Laban. And that is another complicated story you should read. But it brings us to today's story. Jacob eventually realizes that he should return to his homeland. He needs to come home. He also realizes that in coming home, He's going to have to face the music with his brother Esau. And he suspects that Esau remembers all those dastardly deeds and that he is waiting with vengeance on his mind. 
So things feel ominous, and Jacob prays to God a prayer of protection. And there's this moment where Jacob is getting closer to arriving back in the land of Canaan as he's traveling west from Uncle Laban, and he splits up his entourage, and he is all alone by himself. And it is night, and he is close to confronting his past with a new future. But that night, something very strange unfolds, and it unfolds slowly. A mysterious man comes to wrestle with Jacob. That's right, he wrestles with Jacob in the night. Who is the man? It's God, an angel of God, a God figure of some sort. It is a mysterious and dark story. But there are three things to point out very quickly. The first is that the wrestling lasts all night long. They're not like five, three-minute rounds. This goes on for hours. Number two, we are told that in the wrestling, Jacob is injured. He gets wounded. We're told that his hip gets knocked out of socket. And this is a wound that he will carry for the rest of his life, a, a visible limp, a physical reminder of this struggle that he's having. And thirdly, and quite oddly, in the middle of their wrestling match, deep into the early morning hours, Jacob asks his combatant to bless him. There's much more we could say about all that, but the mysterious God-man blesses Jacob indeed and tells him that he will have a new name, a new identity. He will be called Israel, a father of a holy nation, that will bear God's purposes for the world for all generations to come. And that's the story. And so we are left to ask ourselves, why, why would God make someone as complicated and scheming and rascally as Jacob a founding father of Israel? Jacob is not an easy person to like in the story. He's in so many ways unique to the Bible, but I want to circle back to what I said at the beginning. I also wonder if he in some way represents us, albeit in an exaggerated form. So what do we make of this story? How does it connect to us, to our lives? How does it connect to the gospel? I want to answer that in the negative first. I think it is a mistake. I think it is a mistake to hear this story as the one of some wily, scheming Jacob finally coming to his senses, finally maturing, learning from his mistakes, getting scared straight, and deciding he's going to wrestle his demons to the ground and go home. So here in Nashville, that, what I just described, is a classic country song, is it not? How many times have we heard it by so many artists through the years? Hitting rock bottom, lucky to have survived, by a force of will, picking oneself back up with the help of some old drinking buddies or a long-suffering lover, overcoming the past, chastened now, but also humbled now, a new man, a new man settled down. I can see the article in Rolling Stone magazine now. On his new album, the patriarch Jacob bears his soul as never before about he overcame his demons and found himself. That's a good story. It's a good song. 
it's just not the Jacob story. That's not the story we're engaging. It's also not the gospel story. The question our story is asking today is not, can I overcome my past? That is not the question. The question our story today is asking is, can God be overcome by our past? And you are Christian. So what do you think the answer to that is? The answer is no. God has already made a decision about Jacob and Jacob's future long before Jacob ever came into being, in fact. The God and father of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah will be the God and father of Jacob as well for all generations. That decision is made. And God is not about to let Jacob wrestle the promise loose from that. Not at all. And so God comes to wrestle with him, with us, in the flesh. In the flesh, even in the dark night of the soul. And again, this is a mysteriously dark story. And I am confident that it also prefigures the cross of Jesus. God has taken the initiative, come to Jacob by night, and they wrestle with each other. Again, God won't let Jacob's demons win over God's own purposes, and he will not allow that for you and for me either. That is the good news. So when I was in the eighth grade, I remember one of the worst weeks of that entire school year. Our gym teacher was named Mr. Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell was a very large, um, rotund intimidating African-American man who was the offensive line coach on the varsity football team and the head coach of the varsity wrestling team. And one week, that eighth grade year, Mr. Mitchell decided that all the eighth grade boys needed to learn how to wrestle. So one week was nothing, it seemed to me, but an endless wrestling clinic. It was awful. Some of you may have been wrestlers. Uh, I don't know, but it is really hard and really exhausting. And uh, as you know, in, in wrestling, you're placed in weight classes. And so in eighth grade, I was skinny. And I was paired with another skinny boy, exactly my size, whose name was Eric. Um, Eric and I had been through eight years to that point of public school together. And I did not like Eric. <laughs> Eric was... Um, unfriendly, and I just found him uh, irritable and irritating, and um, I don't know why. We just, we just were like sandpaper. We did not. We rubbed each other the wrong way. I didn't like him, um, and Eric was black. So every single day for 45 minutes, I found myself struggling and rolling around on the floor, trying with all my might, with all my soul, with all my heart to pin him down. And he didn't like me a lot either because he was trying really, really hard to do the same. There was an intensity to our wrestling. And it was the same person every day. I had to wrestle Eric. His sweat, his skin, his breath in my face, struggling against me. I'm struggling against him. And we were just about perfectly evenly matched. He won some and I won some. And then that week of wrestling clinic was over, thanks be to God. 
And here's what I want to share about that. Though we were certainly not friends leading up to it, and we weren't really friends afterward, there was something that changed. The tension was gone. In little ways, you could see it and feel it. From that point forward, if I'd passed Eric in the hallway, we might look at each other, grin, smirk, nod our heads. Hey, we've been through something together. And I'm actually convinced that he had, if he had ever seen anybody giving me a hard time in that public school in the hallway, he would have come to my defense after that. I would have come to his defense, and I would to this day. And you're sitting there thinking, well, that's probably the only wrestling story that Lee has. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> so why am I telling this? I guess what I most want to convey is that wrestling changes things. And I also think, I really do think, that there is some relevance in that story to what's going on in society today around racial reconciliation, racial events. And I'm going to leave you to mull that over for yourself. But I think there is. But I wonder if the healing if I can call it that, that Eric and I experienced with one another would have happened if it had been a different kind of week together, maybe a boxing class or um, dodgeball. We were throwing things at each other. I think it made a difference that we were wrestling together in that way, in a very intimate way, in a very hard way, sweaty, struggling, god was in that. So there just seems to me to be an immutable law of human nature that when we are truly willing to wrestle, to wrestle with life, to wrestle with events, to wrestle with our griefs, to wrestle with ourselves, to wrestle with other people, and even to wrestle with God, when we are willing and courageous enough to do that, those are the places, perhaps more than any other place in life, when something like healing can begin to emerge, even if in the struggle, woundedness is exposed. It's not that God likes us to struggle just for the sake of struggle, but again, it is precisely in our weaknesses, having the courage to persevere through them as struggle, that we may find God persevering with us in that struggle and through that to bless us. But it's a lot easier not to wrestle. I could have pretended to be sick that week. Jacob knows what it is to choose not to wrestle with what's wrong and to flee, to ignore it, or perhaps just to rely on our own strength and wiles and cunning to manipulate things as best we can to make life as good as it can be for us. But in the end, in the end, that is no real life at all. And Jacob comes to the end of that. And I just wonder, again, not to draw too much from the story for our own time, but I wonder if we are living in a season that may offer something like that as an opportunity as well. Jacob, this exasperating mix of, of a really incredible gifts and yet some highly unlovable qualities, he is the one whom God's entire future promise for the world is grounded. A future that will unfold as centuries go on in the supreme wrestling of God in the night with cosmic darkness on the cross of Jesus. 
And so I continue to stand in astonishment before the great mystery that God, knowing this rascal Jacob as God knows him, remains faithful in his determination to work out the great promise of salvation through the likes of him and through the likes of you and me. And I have to imagine as the sun came up, even though his hip hurt a lot, Jacob stood and stood in astonishment as well. Amen. Amen.